Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that's organizing and providing access to the world's life sciences expertise to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome Trevor Martin, co-founder and CEO of Mammoth Biosciences. Thanks for joining us today, Trevor. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. So Trevor, to kick us off, talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, definitely. So I'm actually from Georgia originally, although I don't have the accent, so it'd be hard to guess. Grew up in Georgia, just north of Atlanta for the first 18 years of my life and admittedly wasn't super into biology then, was more into kind of physics and mathematics. So I actually went into college over at Princeton thinking that I would be like a physics major. But there, I kind of just on a whim uh, enrolled in a program called Integrated Science that was set up by a guy named David Botstein, who uh, had some pretty innovative ideas around how to teach biology to even undergraduates and really fell in love with biology through that program that really taught biology more as a science that is very similar to physics and very similar to mathematics and very similar to computer science which really opened my eyes and like got rid of my ignorance around what uh, biology really is and could be. Then from undergrad, that was something that made me really want to pursue graduate studies in biology and specifically computational biology at the time. So I went over to Stanford for my PhD, where I worked in the lab of Hunter Fraser and really got to explore the interesting intersection of computational sciences and biology and then during my graduate school years, we had the kind of CRISPR revolution happening. So I got really interested in synthetic biology and this idea of also the intersection of engineering and biology and really kind of fell in love with this concept of being able to program life similar to how we program computers. Great. And talk a little bit about how you thought about starting your own company, the entrepreneurial journey that led to Mammoth and what you didn't know when you were starting the company that you now do. Probably didn't know most things, which is maybe for the better when you're starting a company the first time. I think it's a couple of things. So I loved graduate school um, and it's really intellectually stimulating experience and, you know, really frankly, just kind of fun to be able to kind of explore in that manner. But there's a lot of things that also I didn't want to, you know, continue doing for many more years, which is, you know, not having the impact in terms of actual patient lives and like being able to improve lives directly. Like publishing papers is great and getting citations is awesome and feels good. but definitely feels like you're a few steps disconnected from actually seeing things kind of go all the way to having an actual improving impact on people's lives. And then also just personal growth. I mean, graduate school can be a bit of a bubble, frankly, and startups are the opposite or, you know, just really you're being challenged every week and you're kind of forced to grow in ways that I think academia and graduate school doesn't really necessarily force you to do. So the two of those combined really made it a no-brainer to potentially explore things like a startup. All right. So now before we jump into Mammoth, we'd love to hear your perspective to set the stage around this next generation of CRISPR, how you've been thinking about the opportunities and challenges that it presents as well. So I think the space is really exciting because we've seen with kind of the first gen technologies like Cas9 and Cas12a, um, I mean, these are now things that have gone all the way into humans and have had positive impact. And I think that's just the beginning in terms of like the potential uses and the potential improvements that these technologies could have. So at Mammoth, really foundationally, we're excited to unlock kind of the full potential of the diversity of CRISPR 
that is possible. So going beyond these initial systems like Cas9 and Cas12a and really enabling both entirely new product areas that could be enabled with these new CRISPR systems like diagnostics, and then also improved versions of existing things that are being worked on like therapeutics and you know beyond, right? Like agriculture and climate and all sorts of things where this idea of programming life can be very powerful. And at Mammoth, really the bedrock of the company is this ability to find and develop and engineer new CRISPR technologies. Um, we're some of kind of the heroes of our toolbox that we've built publicly or things like Cas14 and Cas-V. But it's really exciting that we've been able to build up what's now become the most diverse toolbox of CRISPR systems on earth and really allows us to tackle all these different areas and actually bring these improvements all the way to patients. And in the early days of Mammoth, when you were thinking about starting the company, who was around you? You know, Did you have a co-founding team? Was it something that you had been thinking about when you were in grad school or did the kind of light bulb go off after grad school? Yeah. So I think one unique part of my journey maybe is that company isn't founded on technology that like I invented, which is often like the typical path, right? That you have something you developed in graduate school and then you found a company on it. I think one thing I've followed throughout my life that's been really impactful is just always working with really great people and just always seeking out people that are in many ways smarter than me, or like more experienced than me. And I had very fortunate opportunity to connect with um, Jennifer Doudna, obviously pioneer in the CRISPR space, won the Nobel Prize for her work in CRISPR. And she introduced me to the star graduate students in her lab, Janice Chen and Lucas Harrington. And we really hit it off and shared this vision around really kind of how transformative the whole diversity of the CRISPR universe could be over the next, not even just 10 years, but next 50, 100 years. And that was, I think, a key part of my journey as well is really finding people I really wanted to work with and who had a ton of experience in this area I was excited about. I mean, that, of course, made it a no-brainer to found a company uh, with them. What was that experience like when you went out to raise capital for the first time for Mammoth? Yeah, it's interesting because a large part of our story in the early days was one of the first innovations that uh, we were public about that we'd made in the CRISPR space, which was pioneering this brand new field of CRISPR-based diagnostics. And this was actually pre-pandemic. So diagnostics, for those that don't know, it was not the hottest field for investment <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, before the pandemic, for sure. So it was an interesting situation where obviously CRISPR has many uses, but one of the first ones that we were public about was this diagnostic component. So we had a lot of investors like, oh my God, like diagnostics, like am I sure this is something I want to do? But I think in many ways it was good because we've been able to team up with investors that really do see that long-term of, you know, this is an area that we're working on as area one, and then we'll have area two, three, four, beyond. And, you know, eventually we'll be applying these CRISPR proteins to just uh, an incredible diversity of applications and really allowed us to find investors that are in it for the long haul and are really here to support not even just a one or, a, you know, $10 billion company, but a hundred billion dollar company. And I think that actually works out really well. And something that people don't fully realize is that it's a two-way street, right? Like obviously, you know, raising money is hard and you have to pitch a lot of investors and it's something where it feels like the power dynamic is one direction, but it really is a mutual fit because these are people you'll be working with for many, many, many years, hopefully, and will be really supporting you over a long period of time. And we were very fortunate to partner with people that there's a lot of mutual trust. Great. Okay. So now let's let's jump into Mammoth with that great background and perspective that you've set this up for. So talk to us about the underlying tech as well as how you're thinking about you know the bifurcation of diagnostics versus therapeutics and, and how you're sequencing which one you go after first. Yeah. So one of the unique things about 
Mammoth is that we are really building products in two areas, both human diagnostics and human therapeutics. And often companies are just doing one or the other, but that's one of the really things that's exciting about the Mammoth platform and this toolbox of CRISPR systems that we've developed is that they immediately feed into these areas and beyond in terms of what they can power of applications. And one thing we could have done as a company is we could have also kind of sat back and be like, all right, we're a licensing shop and we're going to you know, just license these proteins out and, you know, maybe other people could build stuff on them. And to be clear, we have amazing partners that we're working with to build products and to bring these to patients in these areas, but that's in addition to core internal pipelines. And I think that's really important choice we made early on is that we really wanted to make sure that we were in control of our destiny and had a core pipeline in both therapeutics and diagnostics of bringing wholly owned products to the market. And I think maybe somewhat ironically, that can actually help you form the best partnerships as well, because you're driving the technology forward yourself and you're hitting all these proof points and you really are kind of in that journey with them, maybe just on different targets or areas. So I think that actually in the end makes you a better partner. And we're of course, you know, have really exciting partnerships where I think we can even accelerate some of the work that we're doing in these areas. So I think in general, there's a million things that could be done with these CRISPR systems, even just within therapeutics or just within diagnostics. And even if Mammoth existed for 500 years, we would never be able to tackle them all. So it makes a lot of sense to have this combination of both partner programs and internal programs to make sure that you're leveraging the technology to its fullest extent, right? It feels horrible not to have the technology leveraged as much as possible. And, and talk to us about some of the partnerships that you've been able to develop and you know, whatever is publicly available that you, that you want to share and how you think about value creation within Mammoth based on those partnerships. Yeah. So some of the public partnerships we have, for example, on the therapeutic side uh, with Vertex and with Bayer, these, for example, in particular, thinking a lot about in vivo approaches. And that's one of the really exciting things that I think many of our novel CRISPR technologies unlock is what we think of as permanent cures on the therapeutic side. So one-time treatment that actually cures a genetic disease, which is, you know, would be transformative for people's lives. And for example, we've pioneered this space of what we call ultra-small systems. So proteins like Cas9 are actually quite large, and we have systems that are a third or less the size than things like Cas9. And that can really open a lot of doors in terms of delivery, both viral and non-viral in terms of how effective and how they can be leveraged. And that can be really huge for actually doing these in vivo treatments. And that's both for our internal pipeline and, of course, for the work we do with partners. Um, We also do things and think a lot about the ex vivo side of the equation. There's a lot of exciting work being done as well, but those partnerships in particular, what we can say is, you know, there's work in the in vivo realm. And then on the diagnostic side, we've had really great opportunities to partner with government entities. For example, we're part of the RADx program during the pandemic. And the pandemic has really allowed us to accelerate work that we've been doing, well, kind of frankly, before the pandemic. And it's really validated this view we have of the need for really high quality molecular testing to be available anytime and anywhere. And that's always been our thesis. And I think the pandemic has really highlighted the kind of desperate need for that. And right now you have this dichotomy of, oh, do you want a really accurate result like PCR and the accessibility of that and the costs associated with that? Or do you want a really accessible result that could be even done at home, something like, you know, go to CVS and get like a Binax Now test or something. But the accuracy of that and like, what is it actually testing? What is it telling you? And we think that the CRISPR diagnostics we're pioneering can really kind of smash through that dichotomy and really enable you to have high quality results in this kind of more democratized fashion. So 
those are some of the key North stars that we have at Mammoth in these areas. And yeah, I think one of the most rewarding things about the company is kind of being at both the cutting edge of research and new CRISPR systems and really driving forward the technology and also being at the cutting edge of bringing this to patients. And that's incredibly rare. And that's, I think, incredibly unique to Mammoth. Yeah. And it's an interesting point, you know, particularly given all the opportunities that are ahead of you. I'm curious if you have a framework or even a mental model around, all right, this is the stuff, this is how we're going to assess what we do pursue now. So particularly, you know, let's say a bunch of opportunities that might have presented themselves during the pandemic. And what do you say yes to and, and what do you say no to? And what's, what's your own framework for making some of those decisions? Yeah, I think that's a good question because it really goes to the core of like platform technologies, right? And I'm a big believer that the way you build a platform is by building a product at the end of the day, because, you know, many people potentially have platforms in many ways, but the way you really add value to that and, and really at its core add value to patients is by developing that for specific areas. So there's many ways you can prioritize the specific areas, you know, probably multiple of them work, honestly. At the end of the day, it's really going through that exercise and saying, okay, these are the things that we want to do internally. These are the things where we maybe want to aggressively partner on. These are the areas where we maybe want to be opportunistic. And, you know, maybe it matters less exactly how you come to those conclusions as long as you come to them. And then you just really focus on executing in those areas and really kind of proving out the platform by moving it towards specific applications. And in some ways, maybe you're even wrong about the choice, right? But as long as you're developing the application and you have the ability to kind of pivot and you know adjust as things are needed, and obviously those switching costs get higher and higher the further along you are. So you're continuously refining and you know making sure you need to be more and more sure, like Obviously, once you start talking to the FDA or something, you need to be extremely sure about what your target is. But maybe at the seed stage, you can be less sure. But as long as you aren't kind of paralyzed by choice and are, have clear areas you're running down, I think people over-index on how much work has to be done on this is exactly the right first target versus am I adding value to the platform fundamentally, even if I switch target? Or is this something where it's a one-way street down to that target and there's no value to the platform? That, of course, can be dangerous. Yeah. And since you're working in and interrogating some of the more cutting edge technologies that are out there, and there aren't a lot of folks that have experienced or have done anything similar to what you're trying to do now, how do you think about hiring talent and assessing talent, given that you know most folks that you're probably coming across don't have the specific skill set that you're hoping they develop into when they're at Mammoth? Yeah. So I think in general in hiring, some of the core principles we have are things like trying to hire people that are extremely ambitious and mission-driven. I mean, fundamentally, right? Because obviously, depending on the role, people either need to have existing skills or maybe they can develop them, but they really, I think, need to believe in the why. And like, once you're motivated, there's many things you can do, I think. Um, and that can like really unlock doors to high performance. But I think a core part of it is, are we aligned on like the impact that this company can have and aligned on what the ambitions of the company can and should be, right? So that's like kind of fundamental. But then on top of that, personally, I think in general, I'm always trying to hire people that are smarter than me and more experienced than me. And I think in general, if you are trying to index too much on, oh, like, can I tell this person what to do? Or like, oh, I don't want to hire someone too experienced because I want to like make sure I'm controlling this. I think that's a huge failure mode, especially as a company's scaling. So I think if you are finding people where you're very aligned and really respect each other on mission and vision and things like that, and then you index on just A plus performance and whatever the skill set is and in terms of experience and in terms of performance and in terms of how much you enjoy working with them, I think it's pretty hard to go wrong, honestly. Yeah. And we'll ask you to reflect a little bit now, as you think about your own role as CEO, 
How has that changed with, let's say, each round of funding that you've been able to take on? And where do you spend most of your time now relative to when you first started the business? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So I think in general, like some advice I got early on that I think rings true is that there's kind of three core responsibilities regardless of stage. And the first one is making sure we're pointed in the right direction. So kind of strategic. The second one is making sure you have the best team possible um, and are like just really have the right people around the table to execute. So hiring. And then the third one is making sure you don't run out of money so that you can actually do those first two things, right? And as long as you're doing those three things, those are pretty core to everything else. So I think there's actually some constants there. And the amount of time you spend on each one can vary a lot. I mean, even week to week, let alone stage of the company to stage of the company. And there can be different focuses, right? So maybe on the hiring at first, like literally every hire everyone's involved in, right? And you don't want to get too far apart from the hiring at any stage of the company, but you also don't want to be a bottleneck, right? So you adjust like how you're involved in hiring processes and things like that. And you're also just kind of the level of strategy, right? Like, are you actually at the experiment level? Are you at the kind of like, hey, what is the hiring plan and like the key inflection points of the company level, right? And obviously you want to have some look through at all of these, but kind of what is the core focus? And then on the fundraising side, I mean, fundraising is kind of fundraising, but who are you talking to? And like, what are the things they care about? What are the things that need to be communicated, right? So I think those core things are always present, but maybe the way you do them and the amount of time you spend on each changes over time. I think also as well as the company grows, there's a lot more kind of on the people side, right? Like, and a lot more on the communication side, even within the company. So it's very different when you're 10 people from when you're a hundred people or a thousand people kind of how does a message get communicated through the company and how do we make sure the company is continuously aligned? And so these are some of the things that change. And I think that's one of the things I really love about the startup environment that's very different from like graduate school is that these things do change very rapidly. Like every week can be very different in terms of what are you working on? What are the big challenges? And uh, what are the things that you're thinking about constantly? And I think that's very exciting. And that can be something that can be a huge growth area. And, and so to that point, your first time CEO, I believe, and for those that are listening that are aspiring entrepreneurs or are in a similar seat now, how did you learn to be a CEO? What are some of the more impactful experiences or things that you've done to become a better CEO and to be able to manage a large team? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of books you could read on the subject, but I think the kind of core things that have been helpful to me, and I think have been outside leverage are things like having really great mentors early on who have been even through the process before and have lived in your shoes and can help you see around corners and, you know, give you a heads up or like a shoulder to cry on or whatever is needed at the time. I think that's really, really core. And then the second part is definitely the uh, team that you hire, right? Like that's ultimately, I think, how you scale fundamentally is by being able to recruit in really amazing people that you trust and that there's mutual respect who also have that experience, right? And who you can empower. And a big part of my job that I see is empowering people who are amazing to do their best work, right? I could read as many books as I want and like try and you know, micromanage everything. I don't think that scales terribly well. I think what scales well is being able to recruit amazing people and empower them to do their best work. Great advice. So let's talk now about where you think this space is headed. I know you talked a little bit about, you've been thinking about programming life. Over the next 20 or 30 years, what are some of your hopes and aspirations in terms of quote unquote programming life? And also just some of the challenges that you see ahead for us. Yeah, no, I think it opens a lot of doors once we start thinking about biology, similar to how we think about computers, right? 
So I think one exciting thing is, you know, when people are in middle school or elementary school, are they going to learn to program life similar to how like they learn programming? I think that would be transformative. If we had more people that had that kind of mindset, because I think it really makes you think about the world in a different way, whether that's, let's take a topic like climate change, right? You know, we're doing our best not to have climate change, uh, you know, debate how well we're doing there, but let's say we do less well, then we need to come up with strategies to mitigate it or to try and live in a world that has these changes, right? And I think programming life can be incredibly transformative for that. Uh, A simplest example would be, can we reprogram crops to grow in more arid environments, for example, so that we can continue to feed people even as there's changes. Just thinking about kind of life as this programmable entity, um, I think can really help us understand what's possible for the next hundred years. Similar to how, I mean, software has really only been quote unquote eating the world for the last, let's say, 30, 40 years, if we want to put it like a date on it. And we're just starting to see, and we've seen, well, on the computer side, like how much that's transformed the world, right? Like it's just so different from 30 or 40 years ago. And that's a relatively short period of time when you think about it. So imagine 30 or 40 years from now, thinking about how we can program biology, like how much could we improve people's lives over that time period, whether that's in the health space or whether that's in agriculture space or that's in the manufacturing space. I think people overestimate what you can accomplish in five years, but underestimate what you can accomplish in 50. So I think typically any prediction I would give is probably you know wrong on the five-year time span, but probably way too timid on like a multi-decade time span. And to me, that's very exciting. I think that that's the case. Totally agree. Somewhat related to this now is, you know, I think we're going to see more and more companies working on programming life and what that looks like over the next 30, 40 years. For you guys, as you're thinking about both building and you have built both a diagnostics business as well as a therapeutics business. And I imagine you need fairly different skill sets when you're approaching one business area versus another. What are some of the challenges when you have two main business areas that you're building out? And have you noticed that there's synergies between one and the other, or have you ended up kind of hiring distinct groups that are working on each business area? Yeah, so there's definitely foundational synergies in terms of the CRISPR platform and in terms of leveraging this technology. Of course, as you continue to get closer and closer to patient, things diverge more and more. But I think these things are like a fractal. Even if you look within diagnostics or within therapeutics, and then you start zooming in on like, okay, a specific tissue, a specific you know type of disease, this is true as well. So I don't even think it's unique to business area, diagnostics or therapeutics. I think even within one of these, you can have a similar question around like the specialization of skills needed as you continue to get closer and closer to the patient themselves. So I think it's actually like kind of a generalized thing. And we think about it in that generalized fashion in terms of, yeah, like we hire a lot of people that are incredibly specialized in these areas to bring these technologies to market. And I think the core thing is making sure that we're all in the same boat and all share the same mission of really how can CRISPR improve people's lives. Whether that's one diagnostic or another, or that's one therapeutic area or another, I think that's the key. Because yeah, you get to the finish line, you're going to need an incredible team throughout the entire stack from the generalist to the specialist. And yeah, it just really comes down to the stage of the company and where you are in that pipeline to the patient themselves. And Trevor, to close out, question we always ask our guests is, given all that you have achieved in a short period of time, what's one thing that you wish you could tell your younger self, given Mm -hmm. all that you know now? I mean, I think a key one is just always keeping your mind open and not trying to 
especially early in life, like plan things out too much. Like sometimes I'll meet people who are like, okay, I'm going to be like a biologist and I'm going to work on this particular problem. And it's like for this particular, and like, it's awesome to have that ambition and like to be thinking on that level, but like you might be surprised by what you end up being excited by. So I was very surprised that I was excited by biology in college, right? Not even just high school or something. Um, and that changed the entire trajectory of my career. But if I had been so focused on like, okay, I only want to do physics and like everything else sucks. And like, I, I only want to be the best physicist and that's what I'm good at. And that's, you know, where I need to be. I would have missed, I think all these incredibly exciting areas that I've been able to work on. So I think especially early in your career and in your life, but I would say even late in your life, just really keeping an open mind and I think being guided more by working with people you respect and really want to work with and less necessarily by some specific area you decided 10 years ago. I think it's really hard to go wrong using that metric for sure. Great advice, Trevor. Well, Trevor, it was, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for sharing your story and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are, are pursuing at Mammoth. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.